0: Turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 5. Pastor Pat is in Houston, Texas, preaching this morning at Lakeside Bible Church. He will be back for next Sunday. And I think he's at an interesting time while he's there. I'm sure he'll share some of that with you when he gets back. We love to celebrate... We love to celebrate great events. As Americans, we celebrate a number of holidays, but two really stand out as truly American holidays. Independence Day and Thanksgiving Day. One revolves around fireworks, and the other revolves around family and food. We have our personal celebrations as well, usually our birthdays, and for those of us that are married, our anniversaries. As Christians, our two greatest celebrations are Christmas and Easter, otherwise known as Resurrection Sunday. For the Jews, for the nation Israel, even to this day, they celebrate the Passover and Exodus. Jews have been remembering what God did at Passover and at the Exodus for well over 3,000 years now. It's really incredible. That year after year, and for us as Christians, there is a vital connection between those Jewish celebrations and our Christian celebration days, and at its core is the sacrifice of the Passover Lamb. Understanding that connection will give will support and strengthen our faith in our sovereign God. It will strengthen our belief in His promises and cause us to glorify Him and praise Him all the more. Two weeks ago, we studied the book of Exodus. We looked at chapters 1 through 4 and read about the cries of the people of Israel. They had been in slavery in Egypt, in ruthless and vicious and bitter slavery. They had raised their prayers to God, asking for deliverance, And God heard their prayers, and he raised up a deliverer in the man Moses. Yet, as we learned, Moses at 80 years old was not only an elderly deliverer, he was an extremely reluctant one. He did not want to return to Egypt. He did not want to stand before Pharaoh. And what we really found out is that God is the hero of the Exodus. He is the real deliverer of Israel from the ruthless tyranny of Pharaoh. And Egypt, You see, Israel had come to Egypt 400 years before, in the midst of a famine in the land of Canaan. And they had found a place of refuge in Egypt. Joseph was there. He took care of his family, this small group of 70 individuals. And it appeared to them that Egypt was a wonderful place for them. But as it turned out, it was a trap. And a new king came to be Pharaoh, who did not know the Israelites, and he enslaved them. He feared the fact that the Israelites had grown to such a multitude, and so he oppressed them and held them in ruthless and bitter slavery. And that brings us to Exodus chapter 5, and the first encounter of Moses with Pharaoh. Look at verse 1 for me. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel Go. Well, God will introduce himself to Pharaoh over the next few months. But for now, Pharaoh punishes Israel for making such a bold request. Pharaoh thinks evidently they have too much time on their hands, these lazy Israelites. So he takes away their straw that they must use to make bricks and makes them gather straw for themselves but does not reduce their quota of bricks. They have to get their own straw as a punishment for asking to worship their own God. Well, what's the reaction from the Israelites to Pharaoh's refusal? What's the reaction to the Israelites to Pharaoh saying, you are nothing but lazy people. Work harder. Look at verse 21 of chapter 5. And they, the Israelite foreman, met Moses and Aaron. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. The Israelites are mad at Moses and Aaron for bringing this upon them. Moses and Aaron said they were going to deliver them. And instead, things are getting harder. They're getting more difficult. This life of burden that seemed like the smallest of existence is getting tougher and tougher. Well, three crucial points to understand the sacrifice of the lamb today. Three points to drive home the importance to us of this sacrifice. Number one, God will keep his promise. Point number one, God will keep his promise. Point number two, God is opposed to the proud. And point number three, God delivers his people. God delivers his people. Turn with me to chapter six of Exodus. Let's look at verse two. Point number one, God will keep his promise. I want you to notice in the next few verses how many times God says, I will. I will. He leaves no doubt of what his intention is. He leaves no doubt about what he will accomplish. He is not approaching this contest with Pharaoh as if perhaps he could lose. God is certain he has win. He will win. He is confident. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Does God remember His promise? Yeah, He remembers. And he intends to fulfill it. He wants to leave no doubt with Moses of what will happen. Moses heard this before in his first conversation with Moses at the burning bush. God said in Exodus 3.19, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God knows it's going to take a lot to get Pharaoh to change his mind. And he says to Pharaoh in verse 20 of Exodus 3, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. What about these promises? In Genesis, God had promised Abraham that he would have many descendants and would be the father of a great nation. Well, God has built Israel into a great nation in the land of Egypt under the oppression of slavery. It seemed like the more the Egyptians oppressed the Israelites, the more they multiplied. God built them into a nation. God had promised Abraham he would give him a land, the promised land of Canaan. Well, God is about to take them from Egypt and bring them to that promised land in Canaan. God had promised Abraham that after being enslaved for 400 years in a foreign land, he would free his people from slavery and oppression. God is about to free his people. And God had promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. Well, God is about to picture for Israel and Egypt, and indeed for the entire world, the necessity of the blood of an unblemished lamb to save us from death and judgment. We, along with the Israelites, are called to trust God as the keeper of his promises. Point number two, God is opposed to the proud. There's a contest going on here. It's between God and Pharaoh. This Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, one of the most powerful if not the most powerful men on the earth. And we've already seen pride in Pharaoh. Pride is seen so clearly in the statement of Pharaoh in chapter 5 verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord and moreover I will not let Israel grow. Pride shows itself when the creator of the world says something to you and you ignore it or simply refuse to trust and do what he says. Moses himself, after Pharaoh's refusal, expresses doubt in the face of Pharaoh, in the face of Pharaoh saying, no, I will not let your people go. Listen to what Moses says to God in Exodus 5, verse 22. Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Did you get that Moses is poking God a little bit? You said, and you have not delivered your people at all. A little bit of the old reluctant Moses comes out, doesn't it? The Moses you see in chapter 3 and 4 who keeps telling God, I'm not your guy. I don't want to go. Don't send me. Well, God didn't let him off the hook then, and he's not letting him off the hook now. But Moses protests again. Chapter 6, verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? If these people who are my brothers, my own people won't listen to me, how is Pharaoh the most important in all the world to listen to me? What is God's answer? Well, God's going to back up his words with empire-shattering, history-changing power. God begins to methodically bear down on Pharaoh in Egypt with nine plagues over a period of the next nine to ten months. God is basically declaring war on Pharaoh and on their gods and everything they trust. We don't have time to go through all the plagues this morning. But the first plague is the turning of the River Nile into blood. The River Nile was the lifeblood of Egypt. As it flooded in the spring, it left behind fertile ground and plants and crops that grew and made Pharaoh rich and gave food to the people. Well, the goddess Isis is the goddess of life for the Egyptians. By turning the Nile into blood, God is saying, I am greater than Isis. I am greater than your gods. The last plague is the plague of darkness. Well, for the Egyptians, a great god is Ra. Ra is the sun god. The sun that bears down and brings us crops and gives us plenty The ninth ninth plague is the plague of darkness. God makes it dark for three full days. A darkness that is so thick you can feel it. God is saying, I am greater than Ra. He is saying it to Pharaoh and he's saying it to the people of Egypt. Well, how does Pharaoh respond to these plagues? Turn over to chapter 8. Of Exodus, chapter 8, verse 15. After the plague of the frogs has come and gone, and there was a respite, we are told that Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said he would. A little further down that same chapter, verse 32, Exodus 8, after the plague of the swarming flies, Pharaoh hardens his heart again and did not let the people go. In Exodus chapter 9, one more chapter over, verse 34, after the plague of the hail, Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. You get the sense Pharaoh's kind of a stubborn and proud man? You better believe he's proud. You see, the plagues themselves are an implicit call by God inviting Pharaoh to repent and turn from his way. To turn from being stubborn. To let God's people go to free them. Nine times, nine plagues, starting in the summer of the first year and continuing into the spring of the next, Pharaoh is witness to the power and the judgment of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this isn't something that just happens over a couple of days. This is stretched out over almost a year. Time after time, Moses comes before Pharaoh and says, let my people go And time after time. Pharaoh arrogantly says no, no, over and over and over again. Turn over to Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Let's look at verse 16 of chapter 9. Moses had already delivered a message to Pharaoh. Moses told Pharaoh why this was being done, what God was doing. Chapter 9, verse 16. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. I can imagine Pharaoh is pretty unhappy about that kind of statement. What do you mean that your God raised me up? I got to be king by my heritage, by my parents, by my power, by my skill, by my political acumen. I'm in charge of Pharaoh's army. Who are you to tell me that God put me here? And that I am nothing but a tool of his to show his power. But God nails it in verse 17. You are still exalting yourself. You are still exalting yourself. Pharaoh was a very proud man. Very proud. And by the end of chapter 10 and the ninth plague of darkness, Pharaoh's about had enough. Pharaoh's patience is at an end. You would think that when Pharaoh's patience gets at an end, he would let the people go, wouldn't you? He's seen so much devastation to his country. He's been unable, unable to stop it. But what does he do? Chapter 10, verse 28. Pharaoh says to Moses, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Pharaoh warns Moses, No more. Don't come back. I will kill you if you do. And yet, while Pharaoh hardens his heart, and we're told this ten times in the surrounding chapters, the scripture tells us something else is going on. And that something else is a bit staggering. It can be a bit disturbing to some people. Because ten times we're also told in these same passages that Pharaoh's heart becoming hard is something that God is doing to Pharaoh. Ten times the passages say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Ten times the passages say, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What do we do with that? This can be a stumbling block. Could God do this? Would he do this? Maybe this is just Moses' way of expressing Pharaoh hardening his own heart. You can't really be honest with the scripture and say that's what it's saying. You have to deal with the fact that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. As a matter of fact, before Moses ever saw Pharaoh, before he ever spoke to him, back in Exodus chapter 4, God tells Moses, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Before even the first plague starts, in Exodus chapter 7, God told Moses he would harden Pharaoh's heart. There are two things, I think, to keep in mind as we approach this. First, Pharaoh is already a wicked person. Pharaoh has already subjugated God's people to a ruthless and vicious form of slavery. Pharaoh is not morally neutral as God approaches him through his spokesman Moses. God has pronounced judgment on a wicked man by hardening his heart. And it may not be a final judgment Pharaoh may not yet be knocking at the door of hell. But he is certainly under the judgment of God. And secondly, we sometimes get this idea that God's out there. and God's not really involved with our lives. And he doesn't really pay attention to what's going on down here on earth. Well, let me tell you. The Bible tells us that God is involved. He is not A neutral God. He is not an inactive God. He is an active God. He is the living God. He is not passive. And there is certainly a balance to be maintained here. I think that's why the scripture says ten times Pharaoh hardened his own heart and ten times God hardened his heart. Because these two truths are not contradictory Rather, when we come to the scripture and we see these kinds of things, we as people of faith have to say, these are complementary. They go together. God is doing something here. We may not fully understand it, but God tells us it is so. And here, especially in these first chapters of Exodus, God boldly proclaims that he is in charge of all things. He is sovereign. And he does not back down in steadfastly keeping his promises. He doesn't operate at the whim of some earthly minion, some earthly ruler. God is sovereignly in control and he uses men to accomplish his purpose in fulfilling his promises. What does the New Testament have to say about this? Let's take a look at the book of Romans. Turn with me to the book of Romans. If you're in Exodus, go clear past Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, and then Romans in your New Testament. Paul addresses this very issue of the sovereignty of God in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Be a good study for you this afternoon. Sit down and read what God has to say in Romans chapter 9. We're going to focus on the section that deals with Pharaoh and with Moses. Now, in Romans 9, God has already talked about how he has chosen Jacob and not chosen Esau. And in Romans chapter 9, verse 15, he says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The Apostle Paul knows the question that's running through people's mind. It's not fair, is it? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. One of the strongest ways you can say no in the Greek language. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The Bible is clear. God ordains all that happens, and yes, it is also true that Pharaoh is a wicked man, and Pharaoh deserves punishment, and hardening his heart is part of his punishment. but this is still a perplexing issue for people. I tend to see one of two responses to this issue of God's sovereignty. This idea of God's sovereignty versus man's freedom. The give and the take between the two. One approach that I see is people get more and more troubled regarding God's sovereign power and want to limit God. They want to put him in a nice little box. They want to domesticate God. They want to tame Him. Turn Him into one of their little pets. And what ultimately becomes sovereign for them when they do that is human freedom. And they eventually fall away from the Christian faith, their own freedom becoming sovereign in their lives. They worship their own freedom. Or, The other way that I see people respond is that people of faith know our God is good and faithful and we are committed to trusting in Him. People of faith say, I'm going to believe everything I read about sovereignty in the Bible and I'm going to trust Him knowing He is good and just. And perhaps this is a mystery that we will never understand in this life. But I know that when my children were very young, and when they were sick, or when they'd wake up in the night scared and frightened, they didn't need me to come alongside them and explain why they were sick, or diagnose what illness they had. Or they didn't need me to tell them that there's really nothing to be afraid of. I don't understand. Why are you afraid? There's no monsters under your bed. What they really needed for me is to know that their father was there and that he was there to comfort them and he would keep them safe and would keep danger away, whatever it might be, and that they would get better. Why was that a comfort to them? Because they trusted me as their father. In many ways, we are called to such a childlike faith. As believers in Christ, one thing is certain God is opposed to the proud, and Pharaoh is a grand example of pride. And we, like Pharaoh, like the Israelites, we are sinners. We are called to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and trust Him even when we don't fully understand. Point number three. God delivers his people. God delivers his people. The first nine plagues have set the tenth plague up. They have set the stage for this next dramatic action that God will take. The first nine plagues are a preparation for the deliverance of the people of Israel. The Passover, the tenth plague, is the culmination of the ten plagues. It is the beginning of Israel as a nation. Before coming to Egypt, they were just a family of 70 people. Now they are over a million They have been under the ruthless rule of a foreign king. Now they are to be a nation, an independent people, under the direct rule of their Lord, their Redeemer from slavery and from their former life. And this Passover and the Exodus, this is the central event of the Old Testament. Everything after this looks back to the Passover and the Exodus for the Jews. It is so important that for 3,500 years, year after year, the Jews have celebrated Passover. 3,500 times. In this tenth and final plague, God promises that an angel of death would pass through the land and the firstborn son of every one and every living thing in Egypt would die except those who followed God's special instructions. For them, the angel of death would pass over their home. What lessons can we draw from the fact that during this deadly plague, some homes suffered the death of their firstborn son, and some survived. Some celebrated the fact that death didn't visit their house. Well, God instructs the Israelites in Exodus chapter 12. Turn over there with me, please. Exodus chapter 12. God instructs the Israelites to gather enough people in each home to eat one entire one-year-old lamb. An odd instruction is given with this. Something out of the ordinary for a meal. Something that would not normally have been done. A splash of blood is to be applied to the top and both sides of the door. The doorway is to have blood up here and blood down here. Look at verse 13. God tells them the reason he wants them to do this. Exodus 12, verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now, God gives very specific instructions regarding the Passover. He gives them instructions regarding the exact day they are to select a male a male lamb to be slain. God tells them to keep that lamb exactly four days. And then at twilight, on the fourth day, the Passover lamb is to be killed. It is to be a lamb without blemish. From all outward appearances and behavior, the lamb is to be a perfect lamb the kind of lamb you would build your flock around. God told them exactly how to cook it. God told them what to eat it with, what to wear when they ate it. And just in case they didn't get the information clear the first time, he told them on the actual day of the Passover once again what he expected them to do. He told them to have three elements at this meal. First, they are to have a one-year-old unblemished male lamb. That one-year-old unblemished male lamb is the substitute to take the place of the firstborn son of the family. They are told to have bitter herbs to eat. That's to remind them of the bitterness and the hard slavery in Egypt. They are told to eat unleavened bread because they are going to leave Egypt in such haste they don't have time for the bread to rise. They don't have time to have leaven in their bread. Verse 21 of Exodus 12, Moses gives them the instructions. Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, Hyssop is a plant. If they dipped it in the blood, it would have collected the blood. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians... And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. Because of the blood, the Lord would pass over them. It is not possible to overstate the importance of this event. Born out of the Passover is a new nation freed from the slavery and oppression of Pharaoh in Egypt. Born out of the Passover is the dawning of a new intimate relationship with their Redeemer. As the I Am, or the ever-present One, who appeared to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus 3, God will physically be with His chosen people in the pillar of fire and cloud as they flee Egypt, at the mountain at Sinai, and in the tabernacle of God in the wilderness. He will be there with them. He is the I am. But most importantly, born is a dramatic picture of deliverance and salvation. A picture of guilty people facing death and the only way of escape. The only place of refuge from that sentence is a lamb. If a lamb dies, instead of those who are sentenced to die, the blood of the perfect lamb is applied. It delivers them. This event is so important that the entire calendar of Israel changes to mark this turning point. It becomes the pivot point in their calendar. God's chosen people are to remember every year on exactly the same day at the same time in the same way what God is doing. They are to remember. They are to cause their children to remember. They are to do this so their children's children will remember what God did for Israel, and how their firstborn sons were delivered from death on the night God spared them by the blood of a lamb. Look at Exodus 12, verse 24 with me. Follow along as I read. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the house of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses, and the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Now, the angel of death hasn't passed over yet. This is just God telling them this. And they bowed their heads and worshipped. Can you imagine? The angel of death is coming. And there's only the death of a lamb and his blood on the door that separates you and your son from death they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now since that day, the Passover was remembered for almost 1,500 years. Almost 1,500 times the unblemished male lambs were slain by the thousands, and the blood was applied to the doorway. Year after year for their entire lives, People celebrated the Passover. Until one day, John the Baptist sees Jesus walking towards him and proclaims, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Apostle Paul explicitly affirms for us in 1 Corinthians 5 that Christ is our Passover lamb, that he has been sacrificed for us. The apostle Peter alludes to Christ as our Passover lamb who redeems us out of slavery to sin through his perfect life and sacrifice in 1 Peter 1, verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not wish perishable things such as silver or gold. Well, then what were we ransomed with? but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. How does this make sense? A lamb preserving us from death? Makes perfect sense when you put it in the big picture of the entire Scripture. Let's go clear back and think about the book of Genesis. Beginning in Genesis with Adam and Eve's son, Abel. Abel is a keeper of sheep. He brought an offering of the firstborn of his flock to God as a sacrifice. The story of the Lamb progresses to the day when Abraham, in Genesis 22, was called to make an offering of his son, who was spared when God provided a lamb to be sacrificed instead of Isaac. God provided one lamb to be sacrificed for one person, for Abraham's son, Isaac. Here in Exodus, we see that God made provision for one lamb to be sacrificed for one household. Later in the Bible, as a matter of fact, the very next book in Leviticus we read of God's instruction for the Day of Atonement in which one lamb will be sacrificed for the sins of the whole nation of Israel. These lambs, all of them, were in preparation for when God's perfect lamb, in God's perfect timing, the ultimate deliverer, the climactic lamb of God would come on the scene. His own son would come to earth to save his people from their sins. Jesus is God's provision for one lamb to die. Not one lamb for one person, not for one family, not for one nation, but for all the families of the earth to be blessed through this one lamb, Jesus Christ. It is a picture we see again and again in the Bible. You can be declared right before God based upon the lamb God has provided. The blood of the lamb covers your sin. This picture of the Passover lamb was a familiar one to the Jews of Jesus' day, and it was a familiar one to his disciples every spring, for every year of their lives, they have celebrated Passover. Matter of fact, people would come from all over the land of Israel to go to Jerusalem to sacrifice lambs for the Passover feast. The day Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, that's celebrated in many churches today as Palm Sunday, on that very day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, there were herds of Passover lambs being driven to the city of Jerusalem in preparation for the sacrifice. Imagine it. Jesus is entering the city, and the lambs are coming to the city. In the eternal plan and purpose of God, from eternity past, The Son of God, this Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man's life has been driving toward this Passover sacrifice, toward this year, toward this day, toward this fateful hour when Christ, our Passover lamb, would be sacrificed. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22 in your Bibles. Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22... It is the night before Christ is to be crucified. Now, surely the the disciples have eaten the Passover meal with Jesus before. They've been with him for three years. But there's something different about this one. As a matter of fact, two days before, Jesus has told them, that the Son of Man is to die. Luke chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And when the hour came, he, Jesus, reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I die. Suffer. There is something special tonight. Now the disciples probably fully expected him to pick up the unleavened bread and say the familiar words of the Passover feast that they had heard all of their lives. They would have heard him say, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. But instead... They must have been shocked to hear the words that came out of his mouth next. Verse 15, And Jesus said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Now down to verse 19, And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you, Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus is introducing the new covenant on this very night, the night before he is to be crucified, the night before he is to be sacrificed as our Passover lamb. In doing this, Jesus gave new meaning to the Feast of Passover. Now, instead of celebrating the redemption of Israel from Egypt, these elements of the Last Supper, these communion elements, the bread and the wine, symbolize redemption from slavery to sin provided by Jesus Christ's death as the Lamb of God. We have a day set aside for this. It's coming up Friday. It's Good Friday. It's the day that we commemorate the sacrifice of the ultimate Passover lamb. Followed on quickly by the joy of Resurrection Sunday. And the deliverance and the guarantee of our forgiveness and our future with Him, and with our Father in Heaven. You see, it is no wonder that the central event of the Old Testament, the Passover and the Exodus, points to the central event of all history and all time, which is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins, which is the gospel from which Passover and Exodus derive their full and true meaning. God was giving the Israelites, giving the Egyptians, giving Pharaoh a look ahead at what he was doing in his plan and purpose. At the cross, in the gospel, the judgment of God came down full force against God's own unique son. The blood of the Lamb of God was spilled. The blood of our unblemished and perfect substitute providing forgiveness and righteousness for all who take refuge under it not by our own works, not by anything we've done, but by what Christ has done, we are saved. We are covered by the blood. He atones for our sins. We are called by God to trust in Christ, the Lamb of God, the ultimate Passover Lamb, for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, this is a meaning and a picture of redemption that will endure through all of eternity in the throne room of God where Christ dwells at the right hand of the Father, just as we read in our scripture reading from Revelation chapter 7. So Revelation chapter 5 gives us a glimpse into the worship that awaits us there as the worshipers sing to the glory of Jesus Christ. Turn to Revelation 5 in your Bibles. Revelation chapter 5 and we'll finish there. These worshipers who have trusted in God as the keeper of his promises, these worshipers who have humbled themselves under the mighty hand of God, and these worshipers who have trusted in the precious blood of the Lamb of God for the forgiveness of their sins, sing out praises to the Lamb. We close today by reading the words that will echo for all eternity in the very throne room of God, spoken and sung to the Lord Jesus by those who worship Him. Revelation 5, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Heavenly Father, our caring, loving, gracious Father, in your just and holy wrath, we ask you to remember mercy. Look not at our sins, Father, but at Jesus, according to your promise in the gospel. We praise you for the mighty deliverance of your people, for freedom from slavery to sin, for the Lamb of God, for his shed blood slain on Calvary. We praise you for the empty tomb, for the expectation of glory that is guaranteed by Christ's resurrection. We as your people cry out to you, O God. We are unworthy. Out of your great love, out of your amazing grace, for your glory, deliver us. Amen.